The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Liverpool, the dark paranormal, season 11. Hi everyone, and finally, welcome back to the dark paranormal, season 11. I truly can't believe we're already in our 11th season. And if your submissions are anything to go by, this will be our greatest season yet. We've received literally hundreds of submissions over the break in between season 10 and today's debut episode. And it's truly been a mammoth task to pick just 10 of those submissions to make it to season 11. That said, our mailbox is always open because I have one mission here and that's to deliver to you the most terrifying true paranormal experiences out there. And therefore, as I've shown before, if the right experience comes through, I can always shuffle things around mid-season to make sure that experience gets out to you wonderful listeners. Which brings me on to a question which has been asked numerous times over the break. What length should your submission be? Well, as a paranormal fan... I personally don't care, as long as I get to read a new, true paranormal experience. However, as you will note, we focus on one experience on each episode of The Dark Paranormal, and I've found around six pages of a standard Word document is more than enough to cover a full episode. But we all know the paranormal doesn't work necessarily to a timescale, so anything we receive which is shorter than that will find a home and an audience on our Patreon Dark Bites episode. Because if one of our listeners has sat down and took the time to write in their experience, the very least I can do is give it an audience. So if you are sat on a true paranormal experience that you've always debated whether you should send in, the simple answer is yes. And send it on to thedarkparanormal at hotmail.com or visit thedarkparanormal.com and click the Contact Us link. And so, where does our premiere episode of Season 11 take us today? Well, we find ourselves in the north of England for our first episode and we ask the question, 
what lies beneath the ground that we walk on. Well, in this particular part of the world, the land has seen more than its first share of death. Over the thousands of years of consistent invasions, battles and plagues, that quaint-looking countryside you drive past may actually be the burial place of hundreds of bodies. And so, when somebody chooses to place a dwelling around that area, well, let's stop there before we move into spoiler territory. And before we hear today's true paranormal experience for the beginning of Season 11, we of course need to thank our wonderful team over at Patreon. When you sign up to Patreon, not only will you receive these episodes both ad-free and before everyone else, but you can also receive exclusive access to the Patreon-only podcast, Dark Bites. And as I mentioned earlier, that's where our shorter submissions go to find an audience. And therefore, each episode, which releases every Sunday without fail, contains several true paranormal experiences bundled together to make one episode. Which means over the downtime between Season 10 and today, our Patreon still had a weekly show, plus over 50 hours worth of content to binge, and also received this episode before everyone else. We've built a wonderful team of like-minded paranormal enthusiasts over at Patreon, and we'd love to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal, just like the wonderful new team members I'm about to read have. But before I do that, I'll quickly mention that between seasons we often have a surge in uptake, Therefore, we're going to do today's Patreon shoutouts in two halves, so that we can get to the experience quicker. So, our first half will be now, and the second half will be at the end of the experience. And so, the first group of wonderful new team members for me to thank are... Dane Pudding, Nancy A, Simply Mer, Mephi Bag 5, Anita Carroll, HRV0410, Darren Miller, Feisty Fox, Melissa Holcomb, Nikki McGee, Asher H, Shelley Gauss, The Lone Blood Wolf, Kanye Thomas, Amanda Shackelford, Adam Manuel, Paul Black, Maria Rulers, Holly Bentley, Sarah El Ghazuli, Winona West, Louisa Gow, Joe Mayer, Diane Forrester, Goose Goose, Amber Lynn 62319, Brianna Daniels, Skelly Quinn, David Turner, Erica Simmons, Fist Chivalry, Debrodo, Rowena Green, Macy Severson, Debbie Shadoff, Lindsay Irish, Wendy Tracy Taylor, Levi Morrison, Jose, Samantha Davis, David Podomo, Maureen Scott, Val Bright, Tasha Leal, Akash Patil, Lena, Rebecca Burns, Aja McIntosh, Maxine Therrell, and Shana Court Gardner. Thank you so much, guys, for supporting the show, and I hope you enjoy all the ad-free, early-released content, and of course, those Dark Bite episodes. And don't forget, if you didn't hear your name, please listen out at the end of the show. So if you'd like to join the team, head over to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. But right now, I'm so pleased to be saying the following words. Please lower the lights. Make yourself comfortable. And most importantly, leave your disbelief at the door. As we hear all about a darkness in the woods. For the sake of my experience, my name is Cal. I've been working on this email since probably season 8, editing, rereading, adding further memories as they arrive. 
but I realized it's probably time to hit send, or it may never be sent. I've tried to cut out the dead wood, so to speak, and stick to the key points of my experience. The things you will hear experienced directly by myself are 100% genuine. I can't speak to the authenticity of the landlord's tale at the end of my story. However, at the same time, he would have no reason to lie to me either. As I get older, it seems that many of the people that I know well have had one moment in their lives which has had such a powerful significance that it alters them forever. For some, it's the tragic loss of a parent. For others, it may be the loss of a job or an unexpected accident. For me, this life-rupturing moment occurred one winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. Our farm was situated in the rolling pasture of Yorkshire's West Riding. On the boundary of our farm was a small woodland, known as Poverty Wood, which we shared with a neighbouring smallholding, managed by Old Allen and his son, Young Allen, who was one year my senior. Being the only children for miles around, Young Allen and I grew up to be the best of friends. My earliest memory is of Allen and I getting caught climbing along the high roof rafters of the barn, trying to reach a swallow's nest. I always remember my terror as I looked at Alan holding the ladder far down below, unaware that his mother, Leah, had suddenly appeared in the barn and was now rampaging towards him with a look of fiery anger to match her flaming red hair. I think that I would have sooner fallen from those high rafters than have to face the wrath of Alan's mother when I finally descended that ladder. My memories of Leah always bring a smile to my face. It was she that taught us both to drive, in an old Massey Ferguson tractor. And it was also Leah that taught us to shoot, down in the nettled dells of Poverty Wood. For hours, the three of us would sit on the grass bank of the beck that threaded through the wood. Even now, I can remember the way that Leah sat. She would rest her arm on the ground to peer into the stream's water rushes so she could see the rats as they sallied out to eat in the sun. Her curly red hair was so long that it would brush along the ground as she would turn to us to excitedly point out the unsuspecting rats as they suddenly appeared on the mud banks of the beck. Lying on our bellies, Alan and I would grip our air rifles like two cowboys in a shootout ready to blow the rats to kingdom come. Inevitably, our small lead pellets would land yards away, spluttering into the mud and sending the small rodents scurrying back to the shelter of their dens. This would always amuse Leah, and she would release this full-bodied, head-back laugh. She always seemed so carefree. One day, boys, she declared, one day you'll be so good you'll be able to shoot a flying woodcock. But on that afternoon, the possibility of either of us being able to shoot the fastest flying bird of the wood 
seemed a million miles away. I can always remember my amazement when young Alan told me that his mother had once trained to be a schoolteacher in Bradford. Nothing about Leah bore any resemblance to my own teachers at the village school. Alan swore me to secrecy when he told me that she'd left college because she was pregnant. And just before Christmas, she'd given birth to twin girls. Twin girls who tragically died within hours of each other. Much of our childhood was spent beneath the canopy of poverty woods towering oak and ash trees. In summer, a carpet of bluebells would cover the woodland floor. Shafts of sunlight would weave through the trees, lighting up the deep blue of the flowers. Wild garlic gave the wood its own unique perfume, which, to this day, I still associate with childhood. In the hawthorn thicket surrounding the wood, Leah would take us off to find birds' nests. At dusk, she would cup her hands and call like a screech owl. Hidden in an ivy-clad elm, a high-pitched screech would answer the call. And as darkness would descend over the wood, it would be a devilish sound to hear. That's the female owl answering me. She would tell us in excitement. She makes that sound to protect her young. That's her nest up there, look. In the darkness, we would scan the ivy-gnarled tree, desperate for a sight of this ghostly owl. But it never came. At the height of summer, as the sun slowly descended over the hills, I will always remember the three of us sitting on a fallen tree, just at the edge of the wood. It was that night that Leah told us how Poverty Wood came about its name. In the Victorian days, she told us, the villages around Wakefield were ravaged by hunger and starvation. Diseases were rife and almost every family lost a child. For those rich enough, their money could buy a burial in a church graveyard. But... For those too poor to pay for a grave, they made the journey to Poverty Wood, where their infants were buried in a shallow grave. The earth was free here. She pointed to the sunken depressions in the ground. Just there, she said. Just a finger scratch below the ground. Hundreds are buried. Hundreds. In the sombre twilight, the three of us stirred in silence into the dark heart of Poverty Wood. I suddenly saw things differently. In my childhood imagination, the wind in the trees now sounded like whispers, like lost voices. The dark branches seemed to move like small, skeletal limbs. The wood had suddenly taken a turn... It was now something to fear, something to dare with. For weeks I found it difficult to sleep. I imagined all those poor souls left alone in that dark wood, their shadowy spectres stumbling through the darkness, desperate to find their way back to the villages and homes that had long forgotten them.
Little did I know that my trepidation about the place would soon have an awful fuel added to its fire. You see, Leah died in Poverty Wood. Almost a year after we'd all sat together on that tree trunk, Leah's body was found in the shallow brook that wound through the wood. It was old Alan that found her, face down in the water, the locks of her red hair floating in the shallow back. My father heard him scream from almost half a mile away and rushed to the wood to help, but it was too late. It seems that Leah had had a heart attack and rolled down the banking and into the shallow water where she was found. The coroner's report stated that she must have been in the water for over two hours, but her death will have been instant, which was a relief for everyone. After a small service at the village church, her ashes were scattered along the footpath that led to the wood that she loved so much. Now Leah's ghost walked amongst those other lost spirits. For all of us, her sudden death marked a boundary. Before it, we were children, laughing and playing in that wood. And after, we entered the soulless world of adulthood. The wood now symbolising the death of our innocence and youth, and something much darker. For young Alan, the change was shocking and profound. Always a quiet boy, Alan withdrew into his own world. Seldom speaking, he would spend huge amounts of time walking alone along the valleys and rivers of West Riding. For weeks I would not see him either at school nor on the farm, and when occasionally I would catch sight of him, he would scurry away, obviously not wishing to engage with anyone. Over the next few years, little changed on the two farms. Occasionally I saw young Alan in the distance as he helped his father plough a field. I also heard him shooting down at the wood, but if I ever ventured down to join him, he seemed to have a second sense of my intention and quickly scurry away back to his own farm. In the years following, he gained a lot of weight and when he drove the tractor, I often mistook him for his own father. My mother also claimed that young Alan had been in trouble with the police and there were rumours he became involved with drugs. By this time... Both of us had progressed to owning shotguns, and often, when I'd go to Poverty Wood, I would suddenly realise that young Alan must have also used the exact same spot where I'd chosen to lie. I know this because he had a habit of pressing the spent shooting cartridges into the soft earth, and he would arrange the red cylindrical shells into curious, perfectly formed concentric circles in the ground. Around September of that year, I went out early to see if I could bag a woodcock, as they returned at dawn from their nocturnal feeding in the wet fields. The woodcock, to me, is the most beautiful of all the woodland game. Its okra, brown and sepia plumage, gives it a cloak of invisibility 
as it roosts silently on the forest floor. When it is flushed from beneath your feet, it flies up like an arrow weaving so quickly between the trees that it almost makes it impossible to shoot. But this morning was misty. So where the path skirted the shallow dells of the wood, I could hide in the patchy mist for the birds to land, in the mist-free clearings at the edge of the wood. Then I could take a clear shot. For what must have been an hour I waited, until the early morning sun burnt the mist away from the wood and eventually revealed my hidden location. There had been no sign of any woodcock, and now it was too late. I'd missed my opportunity. But as I stood to leave, I suddenly noticed something in the centre of one of the sunken dells. Although only a few feet away from me, the object had been shrouded in mist and hidden from view. Placing my gun on the floor, I scrambled down into the woodland clearing and walked towards the item which had been placed in the exact centre of the dell. The strange thing was, no footsteps had been left in the soft soil. When I reached the object, I was initially confused regarding what it was, and then it became clear. There, sitting on top of the brown earth, was a small pair of children's clogs. Victorian-era shoes worn by workers and their families. What was even stranger was the fact that the black leather was shining in the sun as if, well, as if they'd been polished, ready for someone to slip them on and walk to school or to the mill in which they worked. I couldn't believe what I was seeing and as I picked them up, I realised the leather sole was so clean that it looked in every regard as if they were brand new. I was fascinated by the little clogs, but later that morning when I showed them to my mother, I could immediately see that she didn't share my excitement. You should have left them where you found them, Cal, she said to me in a solemn voice. The clogs weren't yours to take. You need to give them back. Confused by my mother's reaction... I decided to return the shoes to Poverty Dell the very next morning, but for the time being, I kept the clogs in a cardboard box beneath my bed. That night, after watching the football on TV, I went to bed later than usual. Now, normally, I'm quick to fall to sleep. Even an earthquake would not wake me. But this particular September night was so unseasonably warm that it seemed to take an age for me to drop off. At about 3am, I woke up with a start. I was immediately conscious of how cold my room was, and in the half-light, my breath frosted in the air. Something had woken me from my restless slumber, and it wasn't just the temperature. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then... 
place a $5 wager on any sport, you'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. It took a few seconds for me to gain my senses. Something wasn't right. I didn't know what it was, but in the darkness, I had the intuitive feeling that someone was there. An all-consuming terror paralyzed my body to the point where I literally couldn't move. For a few seconds, there was silence, and then, on the landing outside of my room... I could hear the soft shuffling of feet and the creak of the floorboards. Someone was standing outside of my bedroom door. I was suddenly conscious of my own heartbeat pounding loudly in my chest. I wanted to shout out, to call for help, but my voice was mute and my body paralysed. And then I heard it. Now I was sure. This was not my imagination. Someone or something was knocking on my bedroom door. Great gasping sobs welled up in my throat. I wanted to scream out, but to my shame, I just lay there, frozen to the bed with fear. Just waiting. Waiting for someone or something to open that door and show themselves. At any second, I expected the door handle to turn, but it didn't. Still, I could not move, and I now had the distinct feeling that someone was standing close to me, on the other side of my bed, just watching me. For what seemed like hours, I lay there, frozen in my bed. Outside my window... The wood pigeons were now beginning to sing, and in the midst of my terror, I realised it would soon be dawn. The next thing I remember, it was morning. Looking back now, it seems almost unreal that I almost immediately convinced myself that I must have been dreaming. Even then, I had no belief in God, nor ghosts, or any afterlife at all. That said, I did take my mother's advice and I returned the child's clogs to the exact place in Poverty Wood where I'd found them. For some reason, I thought it only fitting that I buried them. They didn't belong to me, or for that matter to anyone else. Strangely, I gave them a quick polish with my sleeve before burying them back in the black earth. Several people who know my story have asked whether I was frightened of the wood. The answer is always the same. I never felt threatened or afraid of the wood's mysteries, but mysteries they were. 
and this became even clearer one bright day in late autumn. Once again, I'd gone down to the wood to see if I could shoot anything for Sunday dinner. I knew that on the previous evening, Alan had been shooting in the wood. I'd heard the shots and seen his large shape lumbering up the hill towards his farm. However, the next day, when I entered the wood, I got the impression that several people had used the pathways as the undergrowth was all trampled underfoot. As the sun faded, the shadows developed a deep purple hue and the wood seemed eerily silent. And then I noticed it. There, caught on a branch, was a lock of long red hair. I immediately stopped on the track and suspiciously searched around me. How had what I presumed to be human hair been snagged on such a high branch? Once more I got that feeling that something didn't seem right. I scanned the twilight wood around me. To the left, below a thick rhododendron bush, the dry leaves suddenly rustled. There was a silence and then the dark leaves crackled again. Now I was sure of it. Something beneath the bush was watching me. Although I had my gun, I slowly placed my weapon on the floor. Farmers have a widely known rule never to shoot at the unknown, and I also didn't have the faintest idea what, or who, was in that bush. I slowly slumped down to one knee. Hello? I said. Who's there? There was no answer. So now I held my gaze close to the ground to scan the base of the bush. Something round and circular seemed to be pressed against the thick stem of the bush. As I took a step forward, the creature pressed itself into the wet earth in some desperate attempt to hide. No sooner had I taken a couple of steps towards the bush when a demonic cry erupted from the branches high above. There, a screech owl peered down from a gnarled elm tree and unleashed a torrent of screeches as if to warn me away from the creature within the bush. Maybe this is one of its young, I thought, and if so, and it had fallen, there's no way it could escape that thicket. So I decided to at least try and bring it out into the clearing to give the poor sod a chance. As I fought my way into the thick tangle of bush, the owl's cries became more incessant and desperate. It had now dropped lower to scold and deter me from grabbing the animal beneath the bush. But I was almost there, and with a determined lunge forward, I grabbed the creature with both of my hands. The second I had hold of it, the owl's screeches abruptly stopped, and the wood became deathly quiet. I now stirred in horror at the object that I now cupped in my hands. There, staring desperately up at me, still alive, was a bird about the size of a thrush. But I instantly knew what it was. It was a woodcock. But the beautiful cryptic brown of its plumage was matted in blood. As I looked at the desperate creature, I realised in horror 
what had caused the bleeding. You see, the woodcock had had both of its wings torn clean from its body. And now the grotesque bird slumped in my cupped palms, unable to move and desperately awaiting the relief of death. I immediately put the bird out of its misery and threw its mutilated body into the dell. Evil had entered these woods. This was not the work of a fox or a stoat. Nature is not so gloatingly cruel. This was the work of something much, much darker. When I got home and told my father about the mangled bird, I could instantly see the fury in his face, and it wasn't long before I heard him slam the back door and saw him walking towards Alan's farm. When he returned, I knew full well that he'd given young Alan hell about the tortured bird, fully believing this horrific act was young Alan's doing. Dad was so angry we didn't speak for the entirety of that evening. For the next couple of months, we didn't see much of the two Allens. In early winter, the farms around West Riding are famously quiet. It's a time for being undercover and getting the machinery ready for the next planting season. On the shortest day of the year, just before Christmas, I found myself once again in Poverty Wood. It was just before sunset, and dressed in my camouflage gear, I hid underneath a bush, my gun pointing outwards towards the trees. I was awaiting the arrival of pheasants to roost for the night in the tall trees. The sky was that yellow colour, low on the horizon, which you only rarely see at the end of the year. Dusk was falling. No birds were singing, and the wood was silent, other than for a light breeze touching the tops of the trees. I knew that any moment now, the first pheasants would return from feeding out in the cold fields. It was then I heard the sound of feet walking along the pathway, towards the pitted dells of the wood. My first instinct was that it was young Alan, who must have also had the same idea of hunting the pheasants. I was just contemplating what I would say to him, when I suddenly heard the voice of a child. Mother, someone's here. It was the low, anxious voice of a young girl. Although they'd not yet come into view... I instinctively knew from the tone of the voice that this child was reluctant to continue on the pathway into the wood. For a few seconds, there was complete silence. Nothing moved. From the voice, I'd guessed the girl was no more than five or six years old. I tried to turn to see where she was, but the path was hidden by the thick trunk of trees. Whoever was on the other side of the trees was remaining as still as a fox, and I imagined just as intent on listening for any movement from around them. Therefore I froze, not daring to move an inch. Then the girl's voice started again. Someone is here, she said more defiantly, and I think they're afraid. Then to my surprise, a second girl's voice broke the silence. It will be a fox, 
the wind will carry our scent. It means no harm. Perhaps it can see the children. They scare me too sometimes. Beneath the bush, I twisted my body to see through the trees, but the wood was now plunged into deep, impenetrable shadow, in which nothing moved. For several minutes I waited, not daring to move. I began to imagine maybe the wind was playing tricks on my senses. Perhaps the voices were merely a trick of my overactive imagination. But one thing was now certain. I needed to move, as, by now, the cold had enveloped my whole body. I slowly began to shift my body weight onto my hands, ready to rise from my confined hideout. And then I heard it. On the track, just hidden from view, a woman suddenly laughed. <laughs> Come on, something may well be here, but we need to get back. Instantly, my sinews stiffened, and I was conscious of my own terrified breathing. This was not my imagination, and I had the strangest feeling that I recognised this voice, this laugh. I was sure it was someone I knew. For what was probably only a few seconds, I froze in terror as slowly like an apparition in a dream, three darkened figures suddenly appeared on the old pathway. In the winter moonlight, although I remained hidden, I now had a clear sight of them. All three seemed to be dressed in long shawls of black lace, wrapped tightly against the cold. The two children held their mother's hands on either side of her and fearfully scanned the dark trees around them, the mother's red hair cascaded around her shoulders in a manner that I'd seen so many times before. Her pale face was somehow thinner, and she looked younger than I remembered, but I was left in no doubt. There, slowly walking only a few yards away from me, was Leah. She had returned to the wood. Somewhere above us... The owl gave one of its demonic cries, causing all three of them to stop and look up. Urgently, as if the owl's call acted as some type of alarm, Leah tugged at the arms of the two children, and within an instant they disappeared into the shadows of the wood. I never hunted in poverty wood again after that. I would occasionally stroll through at the height of summer, but I'd never stop and I'd never go through it at night. Apparently, young Alan stopped visiting the wood too, but I wouldn't find out the reason as to why until a few years later. Whilst enjoying a drink at our nearest pub, the conversation between myself and the landlord moved on to hauntings and the like, which led me to my experience at Poverty Wood. I didn't go into too much detail, in case he thought me insane, but I did mention seeing shadows within the wood. Now, the landlord was good friends with old Alan, and, leaning in closer, he lowered his voice and said, You know how young Alan went off the rails a bit after his mum died? 
I nodded and sipped my beer. Well, his dad came in here one night, utterly distraught, head in hands. He didn't know what to do about him. Why? I asked. The landlord leant in closer. Well, he said young Allen had lost the plot that day. Apparently, he burst through the back door, all wide-eyed, and babbling about seeing a woodcock floating in midair, and then he watched as invisible hands ripped the wings from it. The landlord shrugged and leant back. Put it this way, you wouldn't catch me in that wood for love nor money. And I can't say I blame him. I've struggled with this experience all my life. I'm fascinated by how my perception changed about this wood. Was it this change in perception that allowed me to see the other side of this wood? As you often say on the show, I guess I'll never truly know until it's my time. Wow. Thank you, Cal, so much for sending in your true paranormal experience to launch Season 11 of The Dark Paranormal. It's always been a fascinating thought to me that, given the history of mankind and how long we've spent on the planet, that it must mean wherever we've inhabited, underneath our feet right now, will be the bodies of some of our ancestors, even if it means a few thousand years before. There is that saying that something along the lines of in a city you are never more than ten foot away from a rat. And I would imagine given the time we've spent on Earth, the same could be said for the dead. But from your experience, I personally interpret that that wood seems to have more under the surface, pardon the pun, than just the spirits of the children and of course of Leah and her two girls. I could very easily believe that there are places within nature that act as a kind of magnet towards these type of experiences. And this wood certainly seems to be one of them. I'd like to thank each and every one of you for joining me here on the premiere episode of Season 11 of The Dark Paranormal. For our team over at Patreon, I'll speak to you on Sunday for another instalment of Dark Bites. And for everyone... We will return next Friday for episode 2 of season 11. But before I officially sign off this episode, I of course need to finish off the names of the wonderful new team members who've signed up to our Patreon during the season break. And they are Bonazar94, Danielle Preston, Kim Haydrich, Morgan, Helen P, Teresa Lawyer, Karen Haig, Diana Gilliard, Claire Eastwood, Destiny Arietta, Miria Charles, Amber Reese, Jatharan Nadaraja, Rebecca Burns, Kate Kate, Richie Grubbs Jr., Amy, Britt Jidwi, Celeste Jenkins, Barbie Dabney, Abby Reesa, Jamie Nichols, Hunter Hogan, Emily, Ash, Elizabeth Fisher, Maria Wyatt, El Druid, Claire Woody, Khaled Seddon, Daniel Chapman, Mimi Shepard, Giovanni Guevara, Mary, Sersha Hurt, Aurora, Jeffrey, Janet Minnie, Lizette Garza, Victor Tershu, Tanya Strelly, Ash, Morgan Roy, Vicky Young, Nicoletta Chicolata, Anna Karen Romero, Crystal, Michelle Berry, Lilia Tatouk, Jack Sugars, Rachel Sanders, Caroline Walden, Alexander Ekberg, Erica Beaulieu, Jesse Perez, Ruby Cumming, Anne, Lorraine Redmond, Megan, Crystal Tongai, Great Dornini, Bailey Pinkleton, Jet Palmberg, Jessica Scott, Kate Lorenzen, Morgan, Chia, Samantha Davis, Rebecca Anderson, Callie Marie, Eric Canova, Monica, Julio Martel, McCoy's Jams, Kaz Novak, Joe Bloom, Heather Maryson, The Derek Dorsey Band, Brittany Howard, Tamakati, Sasha Moore, Taylor 
Madison, Bacon, Tizzle, Haley, Shoney, Harley Fairbairn, Kyle Peace, Kimberly May, Lawrence, Courtney Fado, and Geneva Wright. Thank you so much, guys. And as I've said earlier, if you wish to join the Patreon team, get access to these episodes ad-free and early, and of course, gain access to the entire back catalogue of the Patreon-only podcast, Dark Bites, head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. And so, until next week and episode two, remember, when you're discussing the paranormal, always try and leave some of your disbelief at the door. And I'll see you next week here on The Dark Paranormal. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.